Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. And we're going to go ahead and just wait a minute because the mailman's here. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. And as always, let's go through the news. This past weekend was Father's Day. So if you had an opportunity on Sunday to kick back, relax, enjoy a nice glass of bourbon, I hope you did. So happy belated Father's Day to all those fathers out there. Thanks for enjoying the show. Last Thursday was also National Bourbon Day. And we kind of forgot to talk about it because I think almost every day is National Bourbon Day for us. And I think we're going to have to create a calendar with all these made up holidays that somehow just keep creeping up on us. Last week, we did a little bit of a PSA talking about if you own or operate a liquor store and want to drive some more foot traffic, we have an opportunity for you. We've partnered with two stores already. We're looking to bring one, maybe two more on. Send us an email, the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O at bourbonpursuit.com, and let's see if we can't find a good partnership. And that kind of leads us into our next announcement is that our next barrel that is going to be available to Patreon supporters is going to be a barrel of Russell's Reserve, one of those great all-American products that we love from Wild Turkey, and we're happy to be partnering with Liquor Barn here in Louisville, Kentucky. So make sure you go and you shop at Liquor Barn or Party Mart here in Louisville. And thank you, Liquor Barn, again for partying or partnering with us. And uh, yeah, let's make a party out of this. I guess that's a good way to put it. <laughs> and if you haven't heard of today's guest, then you don't know one of the greatest unsung heroes in bourbon. MGP really came on the map a few years ago when an article by the Daily Beast was created and it was called, Your Craft Whiskey is Probably from a Factory in Indiana. It really shed some light on how distilleries who were quote, proud of their roots or kept distillation alive were becoming ousted as more and more consumers caught onto the sourcing game. And now we see brands like Boone County and New Riffs OKI, that is 10 to 13 year old MGP stock, starting to really go bananas on the gray market. And we really owe a great debt of gratitude to Greg Metz, who was in charge of all the distillation at Seagram's for almost 38 years, but has now moved on to Old Elk in Colorado. So we're excited to see what's going to come out of there. And as always, if you like the show, go support us on Patreon. As I mentioned, we've got barrel picks coming. So we've got Russell's Reserve. We've got Willet. We've got Barrel Bourbon. Uh, we've got another kind of little project that I'll be able to talk about relatively soon. Ryan and I are heading to a, a state that's right below us to go and select some barrels. And I'll, I'll give you some, some hints about what's coming on through there relatively soon as well. But as always, Patreon has all kinds of good stuff. We got bottle totes, patches, T-shirts, and more. So go ahead, check it out, support the show, get cool stuff. If you like the show, make sure you also are subscribed to us. Uh, if you are listening on iTunes or podcast or Stitcher or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you go and you hit the subscribe button. If you're more of a video person, check out YouTube and Facebook. And for all those that are watching on video, hopefully you like the new background. I rearranged the desks and tried to give something that's a little bit more bourbon themed into it. So now you get to get a different view of the office. With that, also make sure you are following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can see where we're traveling, what we're drinking, and essentially all the chaos that might happen on a, on a Friday or Saturday evening. And if you want to get all the new episodes, get them straight to your inbox. You get all the show notes with all the links, and you can see the pictures. Go ahead, go to burnpursuit.com, sign up for our email list, and you can get signed up there, and you'll get all the new episodes 7 a.m. every Thursday into your inbox. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. 
Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. Today, Kenny and Ryan here, and we're talking with somebody who's a legend in his own right. It is, um, you know, somebody that is has not really been in the limelight for a long, long time. However, his products have finally seen a, a resurgence. People are talking about them all the time, and it's going to be really cool to get his take and more information a company yeah. hard to get those sealed doors yeah i mean well yeah mgp is one of those you know things that people know about but they don't know a lot about but we you know the guest today i'm ex- we've been wanting to talk to him for a while so i'm super excited because his you know background is well known and his accolades are you know just He's the man. So I was about uh, to say, I was like, if you own it, maybe at the most, like anywhere between like maybe five bottles of bourbon, five bottles of rye, there's probably a good chance that maybe at least 30 to yeah, 70 fingerprints. Per- on yeah. At least 30 to 70% of them are, are something that that point. Right. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. So our guest is Greg Metz. Greg is the owner and proprietor of a consulting company called Master Distiller Methods LLC. But you know him as a rather, because he had a long history with a very famous Indiana distillery called MGP Ingredients, where he had spent nearly 40 years of his life. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Hello, guys. Glad to be here. Good. We're glad to have you on as well. So I guess we want to go back and we're going to start at the way, way, way beginning (laughs) here, right? And even before work even got involved here. So talk about, you know, your introduction into whiskey. Was it your parents? Was it schooling? Like what what got you to the point where you you were introduced to whiskey? Well, truly, it was uh, pure luck. I I went to, my background is chemical engineering. I uh, got my degree at University of Cincinnati. And uh, during senior year back then, the uh, companies would come to campus to recruit. And as luck would have it, uh, at the time, Seagram's Distillery came on campus, uh, did recruiting. I, I went through the interview process and was lucky enough to have been offered a job. And a week after I graduated, why I was uh, starting work at, at the Seagram Distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Uh, frankly, I didn't have any clue about whiskey and what it was. I just thought sounds like a really cool job to make <laughs> distilled spirits and whatnot. And I had been by that plant a lot because I was growing up in Cincinnati, Lawrenceburg's only about a half hour south. So I, I knew of the plant and every time you were near it, you could smell it. And it was like, just, I don't know, just a really cool place. And and as luck would have it, uh, they interviewed. I was lucky enough to get offered a job and started at the ground level as an entry-level uh, shift manager. So, yeah, and that and that started uh, that that started what wound up being nearly a forty-year career at that facility. And I spent all of it on the distillery side of the process. So it was it was. It, very cool. It's just very cool. And were you a whiskey drinker? Day. Were you a whiskey drinker before you started there? Or? Well, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, as much as I enjoy making it and and know how to make it, I'm not 
truly a whiskey drinker. And the, the reason is that uh, my metabolism just doesn't handle it very well. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does ours, so, but we haven't learned it yet. So I, I have to enjoy it in very, uh, in very much moderation uh, for that reason. But, but so, yeah, I, uh, I basically got into the business not knowing what the business was. The truth of the matter is. So you looked at it more like a, as a from an, an engineering perspective rather than a a passion uh, to actually say like I love drinking this stuff. It, it more or less you looked at it as a way that you can start crunching numbers to get the things that you wanted out of it. Yeah, it was uh, it was that as much as it was that 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 all the processes involved with making whiskey is is very suitable for a chemical engineering degree. So you get you get fluid dynamics, you get instrumentation controls, you get distillation, you get thermodynamics. Uh, so really all the, all the processes that are involved with, with making good whiskey all relates back to what I learned in college. So that was really the, at least initially, that, that was what drew me to the plant. So if you started off as the a first line manager there, where was where was the, the trajectory and and how did you actually get into part where you're just distilling? And I guess when you're the first line manager, was it were you actually part of the distillation process then too? Or or kind of kind of walk us through that that career path? Yeah, well it was uh that was another one of the blessings of of, of working at Seagram's was uh, back then Seagram's had a very intensive uh, training program, if you will, and it was it was all on the job training primarily. So part of their training and educational process was that, that you pretty much rotated through every department at the distillery, and you spent a year up to one to three years migrating through all the different departments, so that you had exposure to all the aspects that were involved in in the whiskey process. So that, that meant like maintenance, engineering, <clears throat> pardon me, you know, bottling was even part of it for, for most folks into the, into the distillery proper. So uh, my, my particular advancement or whatever is I, I started there as a, uh, a maintenance supervisor <clears throat> and I had uh, for, I guess the first year I had, uh, my responsibility was being the uh, electrician and coppersmith supervisor. So I here I'm a, a young punk at 21 years old, wet behind the ears, and I'm suddenly supervising <clears throat> craft people, union craft people that have been in the business for, well, most of them were probably in the area my dad's age. So I learned a lot fast about people management, if you will. And that was really, that really was the way Seagram's designed it. A lot of the emphasis was on, you know, learning all the uh, intricacies of, of making whiskey, but it was also about making you a good people manager. So all those different <clears throat> stepping stone roles that I had along the way were all part of the grooming process that, that really made me what I am today. Managing people is probably the hardest part than harder than making whiskey. Yeah, that's, that's you know, that's something I always said that, that the equipment is always easier than, than the people. And, and, uh, you know, from my standpoint, I was very lucky. I, I, I did very well in the people management arena. And, and that's probably one of the things I miss the most is, is interacting with all the operators on a daily basis. So, but, you know, going back then, like I said, I started as a uh, a maintenance uh, shift supervisor, and then from there they sent me to um, a utility shift supervisor. So then, which involved the boiler and water softening and demineralized water. So I was in that role for about a year, and then from there I migrated to engineering as a process engineer, and I spent ten years in that role, and that's where I really learned the distillery equipment. So most, most, if not all of my jobs and responsibilities or projects were all based in the distillery area. So I, 
I did uh, you know steel installations, uh, dryer installations, all any of the equipment that was associated with the distillery would have come under my umbrella in that process engineering role. And then I also got uh, heavily involved in the instrumentation and programming part of it, which was really valuable. And then after the 10-year stint there, then I was moved to um, distillery maintenance planner for a three-year stint. And during that period of time, we had uh, had uh, negotiated what you call a, a flexibility agreement with the unions. And back then we had, uh, I believe we had 13 different unions relative to crafts and labors. And that flexibility agreement was something that allowed all those different crafts groups to be able to do other crafts work on a limited basis. And if, you know, if you look at that going back probably 30 years ago, that, that was a, a really new concept, if you will, relative to the labor unions and, and management. So it was, it was a tough job. It was, um, at the end of the day you left and you didn't feel like you accomplished anything, but <laughs> it was one of those jobs that, that after the fact, after I left that position and moved on to the distillery proper is, is when you realize everything you learned in that role carried forward and made you a more successful person. After, after that three-year stint as that maintenance planner, that's when I started into the distillery proper. During that period at Seagram's, they had uh, three different departments within the distillery. They had a dry house coordinator, and they had a cooking and fermentation coordinator, and then they had a distillation coordinator. So I, I started in the uh, dry house uh, coordinator role, which was probably the most difficult role in the distillery relative to keeping the place running. The dry house uh, was always the most maintenance intensive uh, part of the operation or handling all that wet, hot, acidic stillage and feed and drying it into cattle feed was just brutal on equipment. <clears throat> and the way the distillery was put together that if if the dry house or the back end of the plant went down with within hours, the whole plant would be down. So it was, it was uh, crucial that you kept that dry house operation moving. And I don't know if I've so ever heard I, of a dry house before. What, what, what's technically a dry house? Well, basically that's, that's what we called the, the part of the plant that, that takes all the spent slop from the beer stills after you've extracted the alcohol and then we dried that spent slop into the distiller's dry feed so we actually dewatered all that slurry if you will and into a, a dry cattle feed component a lot of the smaller a lot of the smaller distilleries um, most of them sell the slop right directly to farmers and don't dry it but the Seagram facility was so such a big facility relative to the size of, of those other folks that there was no way actually get rid of that much slop. Actually get rid of it fast enough to keep up. So uh, we actually had a dry house associated with that distillery. Nothing like and, making money off waste, you know. Yeah, well, it, it, I wouldn't say that we made money on it, but it, it covered the cost to dry it and it and it got it out of our way. So I mean, it's there's different ways of looking at it for sure. It, you know, there were some years where the cost of energy was were such that we actually lost money drying it. But if we if we didn't dry it and get it out of our way, then then you're being more trouble than yeah. If you yeah, just had a, the alternative was that you you would be shutting down or slowing down. Right. So I I, uh, I spent a year year a little better in that position, and then they moved me from there to the. Uh, cooker fermentation coordinator positions so that's that's where i i learned i got my dogs coming with me so that's where i learned the the mashing and the fermentation end of it which is was probably the most uh i would say the most technical part of of making whiskey for sure 
uh, if you don't if you don't ferment correctly, then uh, everything after that's just going to be that much harder or impossible relative to making a, a quality whiskey. And then from uh, the fermentation coordinator job, then I moved to the distillation coordinator job. And that's where I learned all the distillation techniques that were associated with that facility. And one of the lucky things for me is that, that I was able to learn all facets of uh, distillery distillates uh, because Seagram's at that time made uh, neutral grain spirits. It was a big part of the Seven Crown blend. Uh, we made a variety of bourbon and rye and corn whiskey mash bills. So I learned all the all the whiskey end of it through that. And then we also made uh, uh, dry gin. So from a master distiller standpoint, I, I wound up being well-versed in, in all facets of uh, distilled spirits. And how long were you in that role? Uh, I spent probably uh, well, probably two years in the uh, distillation coordinator role. And then uh, I, Moved on from there to production manager, and that's, and then I became uh, responsible for all three of those coordinator positions. <laughs> more, more responsibility, less yeah. pay, right? Yeah, and then uh, you know, then that that got me into the. With that came the the added responsibility of, the, of managing uh, the distillery and all all three facets of the distillery, which which then got me into doing budgets and, uh, you know, the financial end of it. And I probably, geez, Pete, I, I probably spent about eight years in that role. Right. And, and then from there, then, then I moved to the uh, master distiller position, which was basically the same thing that I had been doing for the last eight years, but I just assumed further, the further responsibility of, of making sure that all the distillates and that that's really where you get into the, responsibility for the quality and and the tradition and all the craftsmanship part of it absolutely so, so i was very i was very fortunate i mean in this day and age companies just don't have the time to invest in their people to, to put them through a training process like i was able to go through and i would say that i was probably one of the last individuals that probably across the industry that, that had that kind of opportunity. Yeah. I was about to say, I mean, I, you, it was very impressive because you're, you're not shitting me. Like there wasn't anything you didn't touch <laughs> from the entire process. Right. So it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and to the day I left, I mean, I still uh, spent probably half my time on the management quality end of it. And, and the other half, I was still out at the distillery you know, next to the operators troubleshooting issues and, and, uh, you know, fine tuning processes. So I, I was really, really fortunate that, that I could still have hands on after all those years. And, and yeah. And the one thing that, that's incredibly different is, you know, a lot of people say that, Oh, they've touched every part of it. They've, you know, they've, they've been in every, every facet. However, what makes it different with you is that MGP is a, a much, much larger operation, right? Can yeah. you, oh, yeah. can you give any kind of idea of how big it is, whether amount of fermentation tanks, stills, barrels that are being dumped or pulled out per day? Wow. Well, we had, uh, man, equipment wise, uh, on the we had on the cooker end, starting at the cooker end, we had uh, we had two thirteen thousand gallon batch cookers that we used for the traditional whiskeys, and then we had a uh, what we called a continuous YouTube pressure cooker that we used for the the neutral grain spirit side, and we were mashing probably in the neighborhood of seventeen thousand bushels a day. Those two cookers. And then on the fermentation end, we had uh, 21 50,000 gallon fermenters for the neutral grain spirit side. And we had 14 25,000 gallon fermenters for the traditional whiskey side. It's pretty large. <laughs> Distillation wise, we had, um, we had three vacuum gin stills that would produce about 45,000 proof gallons a day. Uh, we had uh, two 
two beer stills for the continuous side that would produce about 24 million proof gallons a year. And we had a, a beer still doubler arrangement for the traditional whiskey side that would put out about 6 million proof gallons a year. Um, it's, it's really hard to put the scale of that facility into words. It's, it's one of those things. Can you compare you it really, to like uh, any lo- distilleries here in Kentucky in size? Well, we were, when I started there, I think we were the largest distillery in the world. And I think probably to this day, they're probably top five in the world. But relative to, I mean, I think relative to the probably the Kentucky distilleries, we were probably three times or better bigger than, than most of them. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just huge. It's massive. <laughs> yeah, and and I knew truly, I knew almost every pipe and every piece of equipment. I could I could run every piece of equipment uh, in that entire facility. So, I mean, I would get it wasn't it wasn't unusual to get calls at night, and I could I could ex- explain how to resolve the issue over the phone, and I could I could explain the piping over the phone and tell them where to find the issue. So I, I literally knew that plant like the back of my hand. Now you can do Google Hangouts to do that, you know, now that you know. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could probably show me a picture and I can probably still explain it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the, the products as well, right? Because, you know, you had mentioned that you did, you know, you had a high rye bourbon, low rye bourbon, you had rye whiskey, neutral grain spirit um what was there one that was more or less produced uh should i say is there one that was more produced than than any of the others because it seems that mgp is very well known for for rye right now yeah well that was a migration actually i mean we had the the 95 percent rye mash bill that is so popular now was basically a uh, a component of seven crown uh both the bourbon mash bills that you mentioned, the high rye, low rye, there was a 21% rye and a 36% rye bourbon mash bill. Uh, those were components of Seven Crown Blend. And then we also made a corn whiskey mash bill that was part of that Seven Crown Blend. So I don't I don't know if you guys uh, know it, but I mean, that distillery was, was acquired by the Seagram family or the Broffman family in 1933 during prohibition. And after prohibition was lifted, they, they started to plant like immediately and they, they built that plant to be a seven crown plant. So the fact that we made neutral grain spirits, that was a component of seven crown. And there's four staple mash bills that I just mentioned were all, all the straight whiskey components that went into that blend. And then the gin was just a, uh, you know, an additional uh, brand that Seagram's had that they uh, produced as well. So, I mean, that was that was probably the way it was for the first 20 years of my career. I mean, it was all it was all Seagram products and, and that was it. But then when Seagram's got out of the business and uh, and split their brands up between Diageo and Pernod Ricard, and we then we operated under Pernod Car for I don't know what it was uh, seven seven or eight years, and basically the plant continued doing what they always did. They just kept producing all those all those products to fulfill the the brands that Seagram sold to Diageo and Pernod. When Pernod acquired uh, Allied Domecq, uh, they wound up with two distilleries and two bottling houses and. At that point, they needed one distillery and one bottling house, so they went through a, a process of determining, pardon me, who was, you know, who was uh, most economical to Penarvon Car, and it wound up being that the Lawrenceburg plant kind of lost that battle. So at that point, the facility went up for sale, and that's when LDI acquired us. And at that point, that's when we instantly became a contract distiller. And what, a what time frame was this? Oh, see, I think they, uh, well, I think it was about, uh, about 2008, I believe. 
Okay. If memory serves me right. And I think we operated under LDI for uh, four to four and a half years. I think can't remember when, when they acquired us. I was thinking that was maybe in spring of 2008. Uh, Angus LDI uh, bought us. And I think MGP bought us right at the end of January in 2000. Mm-hmm. I'd have, I'd have to double check some of those dates to make sure they're totally accurate. But, Anyway, we, we operated uh, as LDI for four or four and a half years, and and that was uh, a very challenging and a, a very rewarding part of my career. Actually, it was probably my joining Old Elk. That was probably the, the most fulfilling four and a half years I had at that whole facility because we actually operated that like a family-owned business. So we had literally no support from – uh, Angus Tura, uh, mm-hmm. financially, I mean, we, we, we had to be a profit. We had to be a profit center. We wouldn't, or we wouldn't have survived. And we essentially started from nothing when, when Angus Tura bought us. <clears throat> and by the end of that four years, we were, we weren't making a ton of money, but we were certainly a profit center. Absolutely. But, it, uh, anyway, that was, like I said, it was, that was a really challenging four and a half years because we, we had zero support and we, we still with the staff that we had and the, and the folks that we had to run the plant were able to survive and, and actually turn a, a small profit. I was about to say is like now, now it isn't necessarily too hard to turn a profit on it, but um, you know, I, I kind of want to rewind a little bit when LDI was taken over and you were still performing uh, your, your four or five mash bills. And then you had switched over to contract distilling. Were you doing custom uh, blends for, or sorry, not custom blends, but custom mash bills for people, or was it still just the same, the same mash bills you've been doing? And you just said, you know, go have your choice of barrels. Yeah. I mean, for, for the, uh, the bulk of that four, four and a half years. Yeah. We, we did two things. I mean, we continued to make products for, uh, Diageo and Pernod. I mean, they wound up, they wound up being or continuing to be customers of the, of the facility. So, you know, at, at the point that LDI took over, we, the plant didn't have any brands of their own to support, but we still, we still had Diageo and, and uh, Pernod as customers and still supported their brands. So that was, I mean, that was a bulk of our business early on. And then, and then we started the, you know, start laying the groundwork to produce for other, other folks as contract distillers. And you really, two things happened at that point. I mean, we, we, we broke a lot of ground and acquired a lot of, a new customers in the craft arena and and then what what also helped is is it, you know the whiskey the whiskey boom was starting about the same time so yeah i want to talk a little bit about the boom but uh, another question about just the the amount or the the ratio of what's being pushed out so with the 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 five core mash bills was there a breakout of to say like we did more rye than we did of the high rye or low rye bourbon. What was what was sort of the breakout of, of how much stocks were allocated to each piece? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. 
and you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the boom, but uh, another question about just the the amount or the the ratio of what's being pushed out. So with the 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 five core mash bills, was there a breakout of to say like we did more rye than we did of the high rye or low rye bourbon? What was what was sort of the breakout of of how much stocks were allocated to each piece? Uh, they they were probably uh, early on. I would say they were probably in the neighborhood of. Uh, Again, it's stretching my memory a little bit, but we were probably about, I'd say, probably 40% of the rye mash bill, 95% rye, and probably 60% of the, the staple bourbon mash bills. And part of that was driven by, part of that was driven by the Diageo Pernod Ricard requirements. But then, uh, as you know, like rye whiskey got very popular around that same period too, so those ratios are probably altogether different now than they were what a 10 years ago or 2008 yeah 10 years ago right so i mean the whole business the whole business from the time i started to the time i left was a migration in in many many ways I mean, and it, it probably continues to be a migration so i guess another question is do you kind of pride yourself in knowing that a good percentage of, of the bourbon and rye that you see on the shelves at any liquor store you go to is something that you had a, a part to play in. Yeah, sure. It's uh, I mean, for most of my career, I mean, because we were a distillery built to make Seagram products. I mean, for the rest, for everybody outside of that Seagram world, I mean, that was kind of the best kept secret relative to the products that we could produce there. And that secret didn't, start getting exposed i think probably mm-hmm. up until the last eight or ten years so yeah i think it's a i think it's a tribute to the people that work there and a tribute to the facility that, that they make some of the best whiskey as if not the best whiskeys in the world and and that's probably known more now than than ever as a result of you know the craft arena and folks like yourself who who realize it and promote it and yeah. Was a uh, was contract distilling a thing before ten years ago? Before this bourbon boom, like I, I, it's something I really never heard of. You know, before that. no, it's it really wasn't. I mean, it's um, a, a lot of that was driven by the uh, popularity of, of the craft distilleries, which have really taken off. And I think you know, up till up till ten years ago, I mean, all the distilleries were basically just producing for themselves. And, and the whole bourbon trend has has always had peaks and valleys. So there's, I mean, I can I can remember, geez, I don't know, maybe twelve years ago or better, where there was just a whiskey glut. I mean, you couldn't. All the distilleries were like saturated with inventory, and and I think maybe some of that, some of that uh, popularity with the crafts was related to that glut because most of the most of the more popular distilleries were selling off whiskey pretty cheap because they they didn't have use for it. Their their brand demand didn't dictate the inventory that they had. And I, I know for I know that we suffered through that at the Lawrenceburg facility for a period as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, you know everything's a lot of it just happened by happenstance, if you will. It wasn't it wasn't a design so much as it was. I guess luck. <laughs> right. <laughs> they weren't like, we're going to decide this is our niche. It just kind of yeah. fell into but, their lap. But the con, you know, then, you, you know, the contract, the, the actual contract, the stilling part, where we started getting into the custom mash bills and whatnot, I mean, that that was really driven by the versatility and the flexibility of that Lawrenceburg facility. Um, uh, we, we, we were 
it wasn't designed on purpose, but we had the ability to capitalize on the flexibility that we had there. So we had we had enough grain bins where we could do more than a a two grain mash bill. Uh, we the equipment we had was was flexible enough that we could we could operate at different temperatures and different hold times and and that kind of thing. Uh, fermentation wise, uh, same way. I mean, we we did a very good job of of utilizing what we had on hand and, and learning how to uh, use its flexibility so that we could uh, bring in more business, especially on the on the real contract specialty uh, bourbon mash bills that that uh, we produced and I'm sure they continue to produce them uh, even now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're do when you're contract distilling, do you, do you just, like you said, you had your blend of mash bills. Are you selling that to them or are they coming with you with specs like uh, what they want? Uh, it's, it's both. Uh, and you, you folks may not know it, but uh, actually I'm, Besides that master distiller methods, I'm actually a full-time employee of Old Elk now out in Fort Collins. And I, I met, actually met those folks uh, while we were LDI when they came to the plant and asked if we could produce their custom bourbon mash bill. And that's, that's really where I was introduced to Richardson, uh, who owned Old Elk. And we did. We, they brought us their custom mash bill, and we were able to able to produce it for them and and uh you know the rest is history and i'm uh now you finally have a now you finally have a product that you produce that also can have your name on it right (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah it it, it opened the door door for me for another really tremendous opportunity and in in the past you know since i've left mgp it's it's been it's been remarkable and you know, hopefully we can talk about more old elk later in the in the presentation if if you want. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll hit on it. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to hit a few more things about MGP. Yep, it's a big topic that not, nobody really has a lot of information out. So I guess uh, another question. You know, I had mentioned if you felt pride of you know going to a store and seeing everything. Do you ever feel angered or kind of? I don't know, I guess left out knowing that there's a, some NDPs out there that take your rye or bourbon and they make a fortune about it by telling some false story about where it came from. Actually, that, that, that really never did bother me. I think I, I had, um, I just took tremendous self gratification out of knowing that what I produced was a, you know, one of the best whiskeys in the world. And, you know, if it, it wound up under a whole bunch of other different brands that, that really wasn't that important to me. The most important thing to me was knowing that what was in that bottle was a, a top quality product. And I, I took all the gratification I needed from that, truly. Uh, Let's talk about the flip side of that. I mean, if if I'm an NDP, like what's the process of, of selling something to NDP? I mean, are they coming to NGP and asking for stuff? Or at one point was NGP like out there with a sales force trying to get rid of stuff? Well, I don't no, we were never we were never trying to get rid of stuff. We were we were always soliciting customers to, you know, buy what we could produce. So I don't I don't think there was anything you know, I don't want to say underhanded, but that's what comes to mind. There there was really nothing underhanded about any of that. I mean, we had taken advantage of the fact that we could produce really good whiskey and we could we could produce any whiskey that would that would be good. So I think basically basically we were promoting, you know, what that facility could do. And right. you, know, I, you know, to use the term trying to get rid of something that you know from from 2008 on we were really contract distillers period and, and we you know although we had several large customers there was still plenty of capacity left at that plant that we could utilize for other folks, which is really what we did. Right. So I I guess another question is, is kind of going back to that original piece, maybe a little bit of a twist on it. Are there ever any contracts or anything like that, that says there's certain ways that you can or can't market an MGP based bourbon or rye? Well, we had, that's, that's kind of a, 
not quite sure how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from a from a master distiller uh, viewpoint or whatever. I mean, we we had you know some of those mash bills. Some of those mash bills were proprietary. I mean, uh, if we if we did a a custom mash bill, in a lot of cases that that became a, a proprietary mash bill for that customer. So, you know, we weren't we weren't able to at liberty to to discuss any anything like that. Um, and we, I don't know. Reass that question again. I'm still struggling with. <laughs> it's just to say that if if somebody's buying or sourcing barrels from MGP, is there any way like what are there any boundaries to say that what they can or can't say about it? Well, not from not from uh, not from the facility standpoint. No, I mean some of the folks that that maybe got in trouble and overstated some of their branding. That that none of that was a result of of MGP or the Lawrenceburg facility. I mean, we all we did was provide high quality whiskey for customers, and you know what what they did with it after they promised was really pretty much all on them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, all those, although there was a, a few that maybe got in trouble for overstating, there was that were completely upfront about what they were doing and were like tremendously successful. And I'm, I'm sure you know who those people are. Mm-hmm. But, no. Yeah. You uh, get your, your smooth amblers of the world. And those, those other ones that, that definitely have uh, the transparency mechanism working for you. Um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think you know the Lawrenceburg plan or any of the owners that had that plan. I don't, there was really everything that was done there was above board. And <laughs> once once you buy it, it's in your hands. Yeah. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. So was there ever a time when your contract distilling or somebody that's an NDP and they're they're buying or sourcing barrels that you've had to turn them away? And if so, what's what's the criteria for allowing somebody to come in and do it versus saying sorry, uh, maybe you're just it's not not a right fit? Or yeah, not buying enough stock or anything like that. Well, I don't know that we ever put away. I think uh, I think the only real limitation was the minimum order because the plant was so big. So you know if if a customer only wanted a couple hundred barrels, the plant was too big. They couldn't produce just a couple hundred barrels. And there were, there were minimum, minimum orders that the customers had to meet for the facility to be able to provide them, you know, what they wanted. So I think that really the only limitation was, was what the size of the plant dictated. I mean, we, we couldn't, if, if we had a 50,000 gallon fermenter and that produced 400 barrels, it's very difficult. We we couldn't scale down small enough with the equipment we had to fulfill small customer orders, and some of that some of that was based on the mash bill that they were asking for as well. I mean, if we had if it was one of the four staple mash bills, and you know, then we had the ability to to make you know mash a run of it and split it up between two or three different customers. But you know, if it was a a specific mash bill that was somewhat of a custom mash bill then then there were limitations on on how small the batch could be relative to being able to produce it so i don't i I would say that we probably never turned anybody away for any other reason other than we couldn't produce it at small enough levels to meet their demands so back when we were talking about just the the different types of mash bills and we'll just we'll just take for instance the the rye mash bill there's a lot of different yeah. NDPs that, that use it. Now, is there something that these NDPs are doing that's unique that can make them set themselves aside? Because when I think about it, it's it's the same exact product going into different bottles with different labels at different price points. And I don't want to bring in like finishing uh, into this because that's completely different, but just a, a straight rye whiskey. Like how are customers... And I guess, what's your opinion of, of how they can really differentiate what really drives that factor? Oh, boy. that um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I could, I don't know that I can really answer that. I mean, I, I, I certainly can't speak for MGP. I mean, I'm not an employee of MGP anymore. To that extent, I surely won't comment, you know, on their processes because, because that's, that's proprietary, but 
I, w- I, I, can, I can say prior to MGP that the 95% rye mash bill that, that I produced when I was there was pretty much the same mash bill for everybody. And then, you know, the folks that bought it would either, uh, like you say, they, they would either finish it with their own methods or they would blend it with their own methods or uh, they might even just use it straight up as it was. So, it, you know, once, once, once it left the plant, didn't have any control over it and really didn't care to have any control over it. So, you know, once they came to us, they purchased what we could give them. And then each of those individual customers had their own way of, of branding it and uh, their own methods of finishing it if they chose to do so. Because mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. but no, you're, yeah. you're getting to it. I think, I think another thing is when I think about it is like if I just look at a, a MGP-based uh, high rye bourbon, right? There's a lot of people that put out uh, the straight whiskey high rye bourbon. Uh, however, are people taking them from like the same warehouses? Are they taking them from different warehouses? Because they don't all taste the same. Yeah, and they're that's, all different. That's that's the that's the kind of crazy part about it, right? I mean, you look at something like Smooth Ambler, like their their MGB paste is is really good. I'm not going to say who's bad, but it, it's <laughs> different, right? It's and I wouldn't say it's not bad. It's it's just different. So what's the I guess is 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 barrel selection in different warehouses part of that as well? Well, it all plays a small role in it. I I, I don't when, when you're talking about you know brands of that size, you you're sort of talking about small batch whiskeys, if you will. So if they buy you know if they buy a lot this year and they buy a lot the following year or the following year, then those those lots are bound to have some a small amount of variation. It's just based on the the crop year, if you will, of the grain. I mean, the grain and the grain's got a, a huge role in in the quality of whiskey, so that that changes a little bit every year. And then, you know, warehouse to warehouse, yeah, there's probably subtle differences. There's differences relative to if it was aged on the sixth floor or the first floor. Although at Lawrenceburg, those warehouses are like huge batteries, so you don't really get the variation from floor to floor or even from warehouse to warehouse just because they're great big concrete and brick buildings, which are altogether different than what you find in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So I know to answer your question, I... I mean, would people go and would they would they go to different buildings and actually they have like their preferred spot they would pick from? Try some peas better at selecting... Uh, you know, better barrels than others. I mean, I, I don't really know. Well, or is it just say like, just say like, oh, you wanted 500 barrels, go to this warehouse and go and roll them out, right? I, I didn't know if there's like an, a, an actual pecking or a, a picking order to it. Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I truly, I didn't have a lot of involvement in that part of the process. I mean, that was usually driven by uh, the sales folks in, in the warehouse department. But I, I would say it's it's probably a, a mix of all that before I left, we had people that would just, they would say, we need, we need 500 barrels of this mash bill. Well, we would, we would make a run of that mash bill. And then, you know, if we had three or four customers, uh, we might divvy up that batch amongst four different customers. Uh, when we had aged whiskey available, then, you know, folks would, Generally, they would ask for samples of certain lots of that age whiskey, and they would choose what lot they liked the most. And if if the plant had the ability to to accommodate them, then they would. So I I, I think in general that that's a very broad based question. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was I was trying to put a specific answer to, and I would say that it's it's some or all of that. Um, and it it, it it varied from year to year as availability of the age stuff diminished, and then the customers were relegated to having new new distillate put down for them. So, yeah, I was about to say, I was like, did the did the whiskey boom hurt MGP at all of, of getting rid of age stocks where there, you know, you had to put in overtime to start laying down more whiskey? Well, it never hurt them. That's for sure. I mean, that they, you know, aged when that boom took place, aged 
aged whiskey was a, a luxury. So if you had it, if you had aged whiskey on hand, that the old supply and demand thing, you you were sitting pretty if you had aged goods uh, ready to sell. I would say if they had more of it, they'd love to have more of it. But I think I've been away away from MGP for over a year, so I don't know what they're how, but I, I don't I don't think they have much over two year old in in the way of aged goods, which. You know, truthfully, I'm, I've got a, a client that's looking for some four to six year old. And I'm I'm looking for it for them myself, and it's it's not easy to find. Interesting. So. Yeah. So let's let's go ahead. Let's talk about old elk a little bit. So kind of kind of just give us a, a rundown of, of what it is because I know it's based out in Colorado, right? Yeah, they're uh, they're based in Fort Collins. They're uh, they're owned by Kurt and Nancy Richardson and. Uh, Kurt and Nancy were the founders of OtterBox, so that oh the cell phone, oh, cell, phone. cell phone covers yeah. right yeah going on yeah. now. So so Kurt is a uh, a uh, entrepreneur and uh, innovator. You know has done extremely well with the the OtterBox product that he developed, and then uh, through all that, then he's also gotten involved in uh, in other entrepreneurial roles, and he's got a. Uh, it all comes under the umbrella of Blue Ocean Enterprises, and Old Elk is is one of the uh, companies under that umbrella that that uh, Kurt owns and uh, operates. So, uh, as I alluded to earlier, I got I got introduced to Old Elk and Kurt and Nancy back when I was uh, I guess I was with MGP then, but you know basically Old Elk approached uh, MGP and the Lawrenceburg plant to see if we could produce their custom ash pill, which is 51% corn, uh, 34% malted barley, and 15% rye. And then, it's, uh, again, I was a master distiller when they approached us, and, uh, you know, we, we talked about it, and we decided that we could do it, and then we mashed uh, and distilled uh, quite a bit of inventory for, for Old Elk and their, their workhorse, workhorse bourbon. So, uh, so we did that. Yeah, that's uh, three, a little over three years ago when we started putting that down. And then I left, or I left MGP June of 2016, I guess, to uh, to join the old elk team. Uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, I did not retire. I actually left MGP to to join up with the old elk group. I was initially contracted to be old elk's master distiller from June when I left on a contract basis. And then this past March, uh, Old Elk uh, asked if they could bring me on board as a full-time employee. So, And now you so, get to go out to <laughs> Fort Collins to go skiing every once in a while too, right? Uh, I haven't had the chance to do much skiing, but uh, <laughs> definitely make a lot of nice trips to Fort Collins. You know, a little bit more about Old Elk there. I, basically, I've I'm on the ground floor of something I believe to be really big. Uh, Kurt and Nancy are just remarkable individuals. And, you know, one of the things about Kurt is he's a perfectionist. He is not going to put out a product that is anything less than than the, the best you can possibly put out. And he's built on integrity and he's built on respect and he's built on tradition and he's built on craftsmanship. And I can't think of a better atmosphere to work under and the team that he's put together, uh, it's just a group of young, smart, uh, really passionate individuals. We're just now getting up, up and running. We launched, uh, we launched our bourbon, uh, just in the last two months. It's right now it's in uh, Colorado and California. Uh, and after the first of the year, then we're going to start branching out across the States uh, on a pretty rapid pace. Uh, Old Elk also makes a, uh, a distilled gin, and they also make a product called Nuku. It's a bourbon cream. Uh, they've got a small craft distillery presently in Fort Collins, and they're, we're in the process of uh, trying to put together a really nice tasting room in Fort Collins. And then there are plans in the future to build a, a sizable full-scale distillery uh, in Fort Collins. So. It's it's a tremendous opportunity for me, and, and the folks that I get to work with are remarkable, and it's it's 
it's it's going to be a, a really really nice adventure well, awesome yeah, yeah that's that awesome. sounds great i was like you were kind of saying a few qualities of the, of the the people and the process and i think that's everything you need to make a great whiskey so uh you know i i wanted to say greg thanks again for coming on the show today it was a pleasure to learn more about your history more about mgp and learning about old uh you know part of the, the eastern market too because you know we can't get enough bourbon here in kentucky <laughs> that's right definitely well, I appreciate it, folks. Thanks for having me, for sure. Yeah, no problem. You got it. Uh, so if you want to yeah. learn more about Greg, you can go visit his website at Oakview Consulting. Uh, if you want to also follow us, make sure you do it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, it's called, It's going to be Bourbon Pursuit. Pretty pretty easy and pretty catchy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and also subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube so you can listen and you can watch all these videos that happen uh, as we're recording them. And if you do like what you hear, make sure you support the show. Patreon.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. We've got all kinds of levels for sending you T-shirts, samples, koozies, whatever it is. So please go there and do that. Uh, it really helps. Yeah, absolutely. And like always, if you have any show suggestions, comments, feedback, we love hearing from you all and getting new ideas to keep bringing you great content. So keep that coming and uh, we'll see you next time.